everybody, and welcome to Grace Life. Would you put your hands together? Help me welcome all of our first-time guests, both here in the room as well as those of you online. Man, so glad to be worshiping with you. And speaking of that, wasn't that an incredible time in God's presence? Come on. It's one thing to sing the words, the living God is right here before me, standing in front of me. You know what I'm saying? It's another thing when you, when you go, wow, this is for real. Like, y'all know we don't worship an idea. We don't worship a statue. Our God is alive. And the reason that we do this and come together is for his glory, but it, it, we get to experience him in our midst. And I don't, I mean, I, sometimes I don't even want to preach. I just want to be like, wow, let's, let's just enjoy the presence of God. That was not in my notes. A few extra seconds there. They're going to yell at me later. The time is still ticking. But anyway, we've got to just take time and just enjoy uh, that God shows up in the midst of his people. Well, if you're a guest here today, uh, that's what's important to us here at Grace Life is we, we don't come together to, to listen to me. As you can tell, that's not going to be all that great. Um, we come together to meet with God, and uh, that's what everything is always about. So speaking of guests, uh, I'd love to invite you to First Step. You just heard the announcement, but it'll be right after our third service today. So a little bit after 1 o'clock in the room next door. Free food, free child care. Uh, it gives us a chance to talk about who we are, what we do, why we do it, and any other question you come up with. So if you're online, simply tell Text first step to the number on the screen because you need a link uh, to get into that, and we'll send that to you if you text that number on the screen. Well, everybody, we are in a series called Closer, and today's actually part five. When we began the series, I told you we, there would be six parts. So all of the math geniuses in the room, you've uh, put two and two together, or five and one together, and you figured out we're going to end next week. And uh, I'm glad one person got that. I, they're not even laughing at my jokes. Again, that's why you do not come to hear me, because I'm not that impressive. We come to meet with God. But back to my point, uh, the series does end next week, and I've been telling you all throughout the series that closing out our series called Closer is the author of the book we've been using, uh, Pastor Jeff Little, good friend of mine, uh, pastors of church in Texas. If you've been in our life groups, then you've gotten one of those books. You've also seen the videos that Jeff filmed in Israel. Uh, this series was really his brainchild, and so he went to Israel, filmed all of these different stories and episodes. So I hope you've been in one of our life groups. You've been able to, to see that, and hopefully you're excited that uh, Jeff will be here next week with us to close it out. But again, this series has got a very, very simple focus. How can we be closer to Jesus? Because everybody needs to be closer to Jesus, right? And so we started out the whole series with uh, the first idea. Jesus, for 2,000 years, has been calling men and women to follow him, saying, follow me. So we wanted to start the whole series with a simple question. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? Because if we can understand what it really means to follow him, then we can answer the real question, which is the whole series, is what do you and I need to do to follow him more closely, right? Then we moved on in part two. We looked at the idea of seek me. And the greatest sermon ever given, Jesus gave us a, a verse that's probably uh, one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, if not the most famous and uh, says, seek first the kingdom of God, right? And you've heard that before, seek first the kingdom of God. And the simple reality, uh, the reason we need to seek his kingdom is because you will always find a reigning king in the midst of his kingdom. If we can bring the kingdom of God into our lives and into our world, the more that our world around us looks like the kingdom of God, the more that we're going to experience being close to the king. That's where he is going to be found. And then in part three, we looked at the idea of trust me. Here's, here's the truth. You'll never be close to someone God included, if you don't trust him when it matters most. And what we discovered about God is trusting him when it matters most means trusting his decisions when they're not the ones we would make. Isn't that the hardest thing about being close to God is trusting his decisions when they're not the ones that we would make. And then we also learned we had to trust his word 
especially in those moments. And then uh, last week for part four, we looked at what happens if you get close to Jesus. If you get close to Jesus, the first immediate response will always be to worship him. Matter of fact, if someone doesn't worship Jesus, I would question if they've actually ever gotten very close to him. But if you get close to Jesus, then you're going to worship him. And as you take a step and you worship him, you're going to find yourself getting closer to him. It's a cycle that we all want operating in our lives. So that's how we've begun the series so far. Four things that we can do to take steps to get closer to Jesus. Today, we're going to look at it kind of the opposite. We're going to look at the one thing, I believe the one thing above all, that keeps us from getting close to Jesus. And so our series uh, title today for part five is uh, Fear Not. Because I think fear is one of those things that keeps us from Jesus, probably first on the list. Matter of fact, fear is a great motivator. Did you guys know that? According to sociologists, fear is one of the core motivators for the human soul. Meaning, we will do things motivated by fear we would never do any other way. Matter of fact, think about it this way. If I asked everybody to line up after the service in the parking lot and run to your car as fast as you could, everybody think about the speed you would go, right? It's as fast as you could, right? Except, now imagine the exact same thing and something that you fear most is chasing you to your car. How, how many of you suddenly you're as fast as you can go changes? Okay, for me, it's like a horde of, or herd or horde of tarantulas. That's what would be, I, I, spiders, I can't do spiders. I can't do little spiders, like any kind of spiders. And, and like the ones with like furry leg tarantulas, you know what I'm saying? I mean, ooh, just, I. That's like my first question when I get to heaven. You know, some people have theological questions. Mine is, God, why spiders? Seriously, like, what were you up to when you made tarantulas? Anyway, if I had to run as fast as I could, and then there was like these uh, giant overgrown on steroid tarantulas, I promise you I could qualify for the next Olympics. Yeah. Just could. Because fear is such a great motivator. Matter of fact, think about it. It's all around us, and it, it pushes us to do things in life. Bosses use fear. I mean, think about it. We, we go to work at a job we don't like for a person half of us don't like at a time we don't want to get up. All because we're afraid of losing our job and not being able to, to feed our families or to go out for a steak dinner, right? Drill sergeants. Anybody in here ever been in the military? And you feared your drill sergeant because you feared the misery they could inflict upon you, how you would have to stand at attention until 4 a.m. if you didn't get this thing right, right? It's fear. FOMO, do I have any FOMO people in the room? For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, fear of missing out. There's like two hands, and I know that's a lie, because most of us, FOMO is everything. We will buy things we didn't even want only because we see clearance. Like if I don't buy it now, I might not ever get it, and I might miss out, I'm going to buy it, and, and you never wear it. Or you do things you would never do only because someone says, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Right? I had a, a, a situation, I'm going to tell you a funny story, where FOMO was one of the problems that I was struggling with, but it was actually two fears coming together. Now, you know, most of the time, when we're struggling with something in life, there is one fear that we're trying to combat to get to something on the other side, right? I mean, that's just normal. But I found myself in a situation where I had two fears fighting each other, and I was just caught in the middle. One of them was FOMO. So I was with my son. I'd taken my oldest son to a father-son adventure camp in California, and we were uh, out doing one of the excursions one day. It was to a, a river gorge, uh, this ravine where we had to kind of hike our way to it. And uh, the, the thing that everybody was doing that was so cool was climbing up to the top of this, this cliff, this really high point, and jumping down into the river gorge below. And, and so there's a part of me that's having a massive FOMO uh, moment because I, I'm from South Carolina, and to be in this random river gorge in Northern California is, is likely to never, ever happen again, right? 
But also, all of the, the dads and sons that are climbing up to the top, they're jumping off, and they're screaming how awesome it is, and they've got this great look on their face. And I'm at the bottom, and my son's just staring at me, <laughs> kind of like disappointed. Uh, but the, the real issue was FOMO is only one of the problems. The other one is that I am deathly afraid of heights. So the idea of climbing all the way up this cliffside, like hundreds of feet up, okay, I'm afraid of heights. It was like a 12-foot ledge. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> but in my head, it was hundreds of feet into the abyss below. It was probably like not even the high dive at most swimming pools. But that's the way I saw it. It took everything in me. And, and I realized the only way that I'm going to be able to deal with either fear is to deal with both fears at the same time. Think about that. So just for the fun of it, I did make it up there. My son uh, did finally figure out I'm not the uh, scariest or, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, dumbest father there or chicken? There you go, the biggest chicken. I did, not, I did not turn out to be the biggest chicken that day. And I lived through it, by the way. I, I climbed up the hundreds of feet and I jumped 12 feet below and it was all good. So uh, here's the truth. How many of you want something but fear has kept you from having the very thing you wanted? You know, that's the case for many of us. I can't tell you how many times people as a, as a pastor or somebody will say to me, that's the kind of life I want, but. I really do want to make that change, pastor, but. I really want to chase that dream, but. You see, the truth for most every single one of us is there is something that we want out of life. And, and there is a fear that keeps us from having it on the other side. And the reason that's so important for you to, to make sure you didn't like tune out, get this, is because that is as true of our pursuit of Jesus as it is of any other part of our lives. There is a fear that gets in the way. And so my goal for today, my hope for you for today, is that we'll be able to identify the fear or some fears that have been standing in the way of us getting closer to Jesus so we can call them out, confront them, and end up closer to Jesus. Somebody with me on that one? All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 9, and uh, we're going to look at a story, part of the story we were looking at last week. If you were here for part four, I told you we're going to skip part of the story today and come back to it next week. Well, here we are. It is now next week. But for those of you that weren't here last week, let me set the stage for what we're doing. Last week in the story, Jesus had come across a man who had been blind from birth. He walks up to him, does one of the weirdest things in all of the Bible. He spits in the dirt and then rubs the saliva mud on the guy's eyes and says, go wash it off. And then the guy can miraculously see. Well, the problem was that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. And Jesus had already started to make enemies with the religious leaders called the Pharisees because, well, they wanted to control the people. They wanted to have a right kind of, or I think a wrong kind of influence. They wanted to be in charge of everything and all their power came from it. And here is Jesus healing on the Sabbath, which was their hot button issue. They wanted to make sure everybody did the Sabbath exactly like they said. And so they, they, they're very upset that this man can suddenly see. No one's celebrating. You should be celebrating. Hey, blind man can see. Come on, let's have a party. No, they were giving him the inquisition, but they didn't get the answers they wanted. So they said, we're going to call his parents. I bet they'll tell us what we want. That's where we're picking up the story today in verse 18, John chapter 9. It says, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. And that's why they kept questioning everybody. Is this the man who was born blind, is he? And some were saying, no, it looks like him, but it's not really him. See, the truth is that they didn't believe Jesus was the son of God. They didn't believe Jesus was actually doing this miraculously or by power from heaven. They actually thought that it was all a sham, that, that this was somebody who had said, oh, I used to be blind, and the man Jesus healed me, so they start grilling him. They're trying to figure it out. They didn't believe it. 
until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. They asked him, asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, oh, well, we know this is our son. And yes, we know he was born blind. That, that much we can tell you. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. If you, you just ask him. Ask him. He's of age. He can tell you whatever you need to know. And if you stopped in the story right there, this would just be a completely logical answer. It would just be like, that makes perfect sense for them to say that. If the principal called me in the middle of the day and asked me why my son did something in algebra class, I'm going to be like, I don't know. I wasn't there. Ask the algebra teacher. Ask him. He's old enough. I mean, hey, he's in like high school. He can answer his own questions. Why don't you talk to him? But that's not actually what was happening. They weren't being logical. They were afraid. It says, his parents said these things because they feared. They said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, ask him. He is of age. Don't ask us. We don't want to get in trouble. We don't want this to happen to us. Just go ask him. And if he says something about Jesus, you can throw him out of the synagogue. After all, we don't care. Man, talk about dysfunctional parents. I'm glad I had parents that were a little bit better than that. But see, what you have to realize is that they distanced themselves from him a long time ago. You see, if you were born blind or with any kind of a handicap, you were considered sinful and, and something was wrong with you and God was judging you. So what you could actually imagine is that from the time this young blind boy was old enough to live off of whatever scraps were given him, he was begging on the street. He'd probably been abandoned by his parents for the most of his life. Not only was he blind and couldn't see, but he was also probably incredibly lonely. He'd spent all of his years, decades, on the side of the street, on the sidewalk, begging that someone would give him some food. Who knows, maybe they would show up at the corner on occasion and just look. Maybe they would weep. Maybe they wouldn't care. But here's the point. These people, this mom and this dad, of everybody on planet Earth at that moment, knew better than anybody what Jesus had done. Better than anybody. There were people who walked by him every day that were arguing. Is he the one blind? Well, I don't really know. Kind of looks like him. I'm not sure. But they were sure. They were sure they were even willing to tell the Jews, look, here's all, we know two things. That's our son, and he used to be blind. We don't know anything else. They were trying to lie about the Jesus part. They knew. They knew it was Jesus. And here's the point. If there's anybody whose life should have been changed in this moment, it would have been the parents. I mean, imagine if your child is handicapped, your child is born blind, your child is, is in rehab, your child is a drug addict or an alcoholic or a thief, and your child gets radically changed by Jesus, and they look at you and say, Jesus did this. You are the most likely candidate to become a Jesus follower. You are the most likely candidate to testify to the goodness of Jesus. Len, let me tell you about my son. And now look at what Jesus has done. You are the most likely candidate to believe that Jesus is the son of God. And yet none of that happened, did it? They actually never even got close to Jesus because they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of what it was going to cost them if they took a step closer to the man who had done the greatest work in their son's life. Now, it's easy to judge them, isn't it? I can't tell you how many times I've read this story, and I've been so impressed with the, the blind man. I mean, I told you last week in part four, if I'm blind and some dude I don't know walks up, spits in the dirt, and rubs it on my face, I am not going to do what he says. 
I'm not going to wash it off, and I may be blind, but I'm going to be swinging. I'm going to do whatever. Somewhere out there, I'm going to hit something. Like, how dare you, you know? So I've always been impressed that this man actually, like, goes and does what he says, and he, he follows Jesus, worships him. Like, whoa, dude, come on, two thumbs up for you. But every time I've read the story, I've thought, worst parents in the world. Can we get a little metal, little T-shirt says, we are, whor-. okay, anyway. But before we judge them, we need to realize that the struggle they had 2,000 years ago is the struggle you and I have every single day. And that is just the reality that if we get close to Jesus, it's going to cost us something. And sometimes we're not willing to pay that price. Matter of fact, there are some people we probably think well of in the Bible that did the same thing as these parents. You see, when Jesus was crucified and hanging on the cross, he was abandoned by his disciples. People who knew him the best and the closest were nowhere to be found. Most of them were gone. As we can tell, maybe one was there somewhere close to the end, along with his mother and a couple of the ladies, but everybody else was in hiding. And when it gets to the end of the day, literally, as the sun sets and Jesus hangs lifeless on the cross, there were two people that were willing to be associated and to say, can we take care of his body? I want to show you this because they risked everything in order to do this. In John chapter 19, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear. He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he had feared the Jews, he went and asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And so Pilate gave him permission, and he came and he took away the body. But just freeze right there for a minute, because you've got to understand something. Here is a man who had been a secret follower of Jesus, but that means at a distance and not telling anybody about it because he had feared what the Jews and the Pharisees and the religious leaders would do to him. We're going to find out in a minute. He's actually very wealthy, and he has great influence. Maybe his wealth comes from shops or landlording or who knows, but maybe he would have lost it all, maybe lost all of his money. So he's been afraid to follow Jesus. But now suddenly he's decided he's going to take a big risk. Now that Jesus has been crucified, you know, everybody, I think, could see something happen that day. Even one of the soldiers said, wow, this man was the son of God. I think something finally happened inside of him that said, I'm going to stand up for this. I'm going to stand up for this man, Jesus. I'm going to have some courage. Because he actually went to Pilate and said, I'm associating myself with Jesus. Can I have his body? And what you need to understand and remember is Pilate is the one who had condemned Jesus to death. And Pilate was the one who condemned Jesus to death, even though he knew he was innocent. So there was no guarantee. Hey, I'm Joseph, and uh, I would like to take care of Joseph. Uh, uh, I mean, Jesus, I'd like to take care of his body. There was no guarantee that just because you were innocent that you would come away from that. I mean, he could have found himself, oh, you're with him? Well, let me hang you too. He risked everything. Finally, he came up with the courage to say, "I'll, I'll be associated with him. Let's not leave his body there overnight. He wasn't alone. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. Wow. Another man. Why did he go by night? Because he was afraid. He was afraid. He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus. They bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You know, one of the reasons that both of these guys were there when Jesus breathed his last and they were willing to take his body down 
is because they had been so far from Jesus, they could stand in the crowd and nobody would associate them with him. They had stayed so far away, any admiration they had had up until that point had been at such a distance. And now suddenly both of them are risking everything. So as we said, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. We know he was rich because he had a tomb that he's going to lay Jesus in. And you may think that's normal. It is not. Most people's bodies were discarded in another way. It was only the extremely wealthy that could afford to have a tomb carved into the side of a mountain. This was hard, hard work. They would literally cut into stone, not just a little hole for your body, but a room. It was like a small house. You could go into the first room and there would be some carved platforms for beds to be laid out, um, for, for bodies to be laid out on. And then there would be another room, sometimes two other rooms for like the, the patriarch of the family or, or someone that was special. And so Joseph, is, he has spent all of his fortune. He's taken years to have one of these things prepared for him. At this point, I imagine he's not very young. If he's accumulated a lot of wealth and he's got a, an important position in the community, he is probably beyond middle age, which means there may not be a chance of him having time to carve out another tomb for himself. And so he's taking all of this money, maybe losing the chance to have a tomb for his own body and his own being taken care of. But he's also about to say, I'm associated with Jesus, which means he may lose his money or whatever opportunity he had. I just want you to understand he's risking everything that was valuable to him. Because you and I, we think that he, what we know to be true, he's just loaning the, the tomb out for three days. But he didn't know that. He thinks he's about to put Jesus' body in his spot and then he's going to be thrown out himself. Nicodemus comes along. Nicodemus was actually one of the Pharisees, one of the rulers. That's why it had to go to Jesus by night. We know in other stories in the Bible, Nicodemus, he saw there's something in this Jesus guy. He knew something was special. He went to him and said, so what does it take to be saved? What does it take to be born again? What does it take to be in the kingdom of God? And he was the one who defended Jesus when the Pharisees wanted to kill him. He said, hey, hey, doesn't everybody deserve a trial? So as good as Nicodemus had done from a distance, he's finally willing to say, everybody's going to see me, but I don't care. All of the Pharisees are going to know me. From now on, I've lost everything. And at this moment, these two guys step up, Joseph and Nicodemus, and they say, we're going to do all of this. And I don't know about you, but it makes me want to go, go Joseph. Go Nicodemus, man, a little late to the party, but yes, better than never, right? Here's the problem. Did you notice that both of them let fear keep them from being closer to Jesus when it mattered most? You see, here's the truth. We know they had some contact with Jesus. It's in the Bible. We know they liked Jesus. It's in the Bible. But think about when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised a dead man. They weren't there to see it. Think about when Jesus met the naked demoniac running around. Had to be a hilarious sight. Naked and demonized. I mean, wow. They weren't there to see it. Think about when Jesus took two little fish and five loaves of bread and fed 5,000 men, likely to be about 20,000 people. They might have been there to see it because it was a crowd they could hide in, but they would have been probably about two to 3,000 people back. Think about when Jesus walked on the water to meet his disciples in a boat and Peter got out and walked on the water to him. They didn't see that because they let fear keep them from being close to Jesus at the best moments. Chances are most everyone here today, the reason we're talking about this, most of us has had either a Nicodemus and Joseph moment. We've had something that's allowed us, kept us from getting closer to Jesus 
at the time where, well, we really wished we could have. And so today, if we don't identify what this fear is, then we can't really confront it, and we can't remove it, and we can't get closer to Jesus. So I'm just going to ask everybody one simple question. What do you fear that keeps you from being closer to Jesus? What do you fear that keeps you from being closer to Jesus? It's important for you to answer this question. I'm not going to ask you to share your answer, but before we go any further, you, you need to name it so that you know what it is. And for the rest of the message, in order to help you actually apply this before we leave today, I'm going to give you three types of fears, and I'm pretty sure that whatever you just named is going to fit into one of these three types of fears that has kept us from getting closer to Jesus so far. The first one is simply a fear of rejection. The truth is there's probably nobody here that says, I want to be a social outcast. I like being made fun of and picked on. I, I don't think there's anybody here. There's probably no student here that says, I can't wait for Monday to be bullied and to be made fun of. There's probably nobody here who says, I can't wait to go to work tomorrow and be the weird coworker nobody wants to have lunch with. And you know what? That's actually good to a degree because it is our reputation that allows us to share Jesus. Nobody wants to listen to the weird person in the room, right? You know, I mean, it is a good reputation that allows us to honor God in our life. So there's some good to that. The problem is when your desire for that good reputation comes at the cost of getting close to Jesus because you need to impress people. What are you going to do then? Matter of fact, let me show this to you in Scripture. It turns out we're not the only ones with this problem. Out of John chapter 12, it says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, Jesus, that is. They believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. If you were put out of the synagogue, you could be told, don't go shop at their shops, don't rent from them, don't buy their sheep, don't sell them olive oil. You would be ostracized for life. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, none of us want to go to school and be picked on for being a Jesus freak or a Bible believer in 2023. Who would do that? None of us wants to go to work and either get fired or lose favor with your superiors so that you may not be promoted or ever have a chance at the corner office. I used to teach school, and when I was teaching school, it was kind of the, the new issue was in the news and everybody was worried about with teachers being fired for standing up for their faith. Because it was, it was just at that time that it became a big deal that if teachers led an organization like Fellowship of Christian Athletes or they, they led a, a Bible study before or after school that they were losing their jobs because of it. As a matter of fact, the whole legal push was, well, students can do it and a teacher can be in the room, but they can't lead it. So if there was a prayer, a, a, a teacher could be there with their eyes closed, but they couldn't speak out. And it was baffling to me to watch like the National Day at the Pole, if you've heard of that. It's when all the students one morning will come out and pray at the flagpole. You've got all these students that are willing to be embarrassed for the name of Jesus. And no teachers would be there for fear of being fired. Look, here's the real issue is fear has kept us from being closer to Jesus at some point. But what we're going to have to be honest about, you can't be close to God while also being close to people that hate God. Did y'all? You can't be close to God while trying to be close to people who hate God. It's never going to work. We're going to have to choose at some point. Maybe your fear is different. Maybe it's the fear of surrender. You know, 
you've heard me preach this truth. If you've been around Grace Life any period of time, you've heard it multiple times. It's one of the greatest core truths about our God. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you just as you are. And God loves you too much to leave you just as you are. I've never met anybody in church or out of church that does not already come with the understanding, if I follow God, it'll mean change. It doesn't matter who you meet or where. We, we all have this innate understanding. Well, if I, if I say I want to be more godly, if I want to follow God, if I want to be a Christian, if I want to be a Jesus follower, it's going to mean some kind of change. We started the whole series with the idea of follow me. If we follow Jesus, it's going to require us to surrender some of our ways of living to what he has for us. But we're not all quite ready to make that change, are we? I mean, we would love to make those changes, and, and sometimes we're like, oh, Jesus, would you just come and change this one thing in my life? But don't change everything. We've got some things that we like. We're just not ready to surrender to his ways. We know what the Bible says about some of our moral choices. We know what God thinks about some of the things, but we're like, I'm just not ready. We know what God would want for us with some of our spending or some of our giving, but I work hard for my money, and it's my money. Maybe for you it's a bad habit. Well, I, I like my, you could call it a bad habit. I happen to be having fun with it. How dare you? You know, I mean, some of us aren't ready to give up though. Some of us, it's the way we speak. It's our four-letter words or our crude jokes that everybody laughs at. We've all got something that, well, maybe we're just not ready to change. And so it's a fear of surrender. In order to get closer to Jesus, we know. We know we're going to have to do what he said. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he was the one that said, I've just come to fulfill my father's words. And that's a challenge, isn't it? Some of us were not as close to Jesus because of a fear of surrender. One more. Some of us were not as close to Jesus because, well, we fear we're not good enough. We just, I can't get close to Jesus. I mean, I've let him down so many times. I'm such a, a bad person. We looked in the series at the story of the centurion he wanted his servant healed. He knew Jesus could do it, but he, he wouldn't even let Jesus come into his house. No, 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 you are not going to come and lay hands on my servant. You can speak from afar, but I'm not worthy. There's another great story of a woman who had been sick for 12 years. And she knew, she knew if I can just touch Jesus, I'll be healed. And she was right, but she was afraid to go to Jesus. She was afraid to say, would you please heal me? So she hid in a massive crowd, crawled through the crowd and barely touched the hem of his robe. And we know she was afraid because Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? She didn't answer. The Bible tells us why. And everybody around him, what do you mean, Jesus? You're like in the biggest crowd we've ever seen. How can you say who touched you? And he kept pushing. Who touched me? Somebody touched me. I felt the power go out. Somebody touched me. And everybody in the crowd, not me, not me, not me, not me. And it was only after she knew she was found out, the Bible says, trembling. It's called fear. Trembling, she said, it's me. Because although she knew Jesus could heal her, she didn't think she was good enough to be healed. You see, here's what's crazy. Jesus died for us when we were as far from him as we could ever be. And the lie of the devil is, you're not good enough to go to Jesus. For you and me, this is as literal as it gets. He died for us thousands of years before we were ever born. 
Which means thousands of years before you ever came to a church service and said, praise Jesus. Thousands of years before you ever prayed your first prayer. Thousands of years before you ever had one good thought. Thousands of years before. Jesus hung on a cross because he loved you. Look, here's a newsflash. If you don't know this, I'm going to just make it real clear to you today. You are not good enough. And that's the appropriate response. Every service so far, a small handful laughs. And most of us don't. Because a few of us, we face the reality. The rest, it still hurts too much. It wasn't funny because you get up every day and you look in the mirror and you're disgusted with the person who has let God down so much. You think about what you did last week and what you looked at on the internet. And so when someone says you're not good, it's not funny. It is tormenting the thought every single day. It's the lie of the devil. Here's what you need to know. You and I do not take a step towards Jesus because we're good enough. Jesus took steps toward us because we're not. That's the truth. You don't ever have to be good enough to go to him. It's the fact that you can't be good enough that he came to us. But the devil wants to keep you thinking. Remember what you did? Remember what you thought? Remember what you said? Remember what you looked at? Mm, you better stay away. Better keep your distance. I've been pastoring long enough, I'm telling you. I've met people, I've met every one of you probably that would say the same thing. And people would tell me, well, I, I stayed away from church for a couple weeks because, you know, I kind of got off course. Well, you know, I didn't have my devotion last weekend because Thursday night I did. It's the craziest lie of the devil that when we need Jesus most and we feel not good enough, we stay away. We stay away. Instead of taking a step closer and saying, Jesus, I need you. It's when we don't feel good enough. The fear of what God will do. Maybe he'll judge us. Maybe Jesus will shake his head. Matter of fact, I want to close with something very encouraging. I do not believe that Jesus is in heaven shaking his head at you. I do believe every one of us has disappointed God. We've all let him down. We've all not been as close as we should have been. I believe that because we're sinners. We're human. But I do not believe Jesus is in heaven shaking his head at you. And I'm not trying to say that because I want to be a happy preaching pastor. Trying to motivate you. No. I say that because that's exactly what happened when Jesus had an encounter with someone who had disappointed him greatly. He didn't shake his head. This is a story of Peter after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. But let's back up to right before he was crucified. The night before, Jesus had told his disciples, I'm going somewhere you cannot come. That was heaven. And Peter said, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm willing to die for you, so I will go anywhere you can go. How dare you say that I can't keep up? Because I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, actually, Peter, you're even going to deny you know me before the sun comes up three times. As the story goes, that's exactly what happens. Why did he do it? Fear. Fearing for his life, Jesus was innocent, and yet he was under arrest, and they were shouting, crucify him. He feared for his life. He feared association. He feared losing everything. And he was so afraid. Think about this. He was so afraid, it was so illogical, that he lied to a little girl 
No, 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 I don't know him. He even told a little girl he didn't know him. He was so overwhelmed with fear. This girl couldn't even pick up a sword, much less take his life. He was so afraid of being connected to Jesus that he lies to a little girl. Now you can imagine how Jesus felt after Jesus was crucified. The guilt that would come over him of knowing at his worst moment, he hung on the cross and he looked out and I wasn't there. I told him I loved him so much I'd die with him and for him. Can you imagine how Peter felt at that moment? So fast forward, Jesus was crucified. Jesus was raised from the dead. And we're going to pick up the story of one of the encounters that happened. It's in John chapter 21, if you're taking notes. It'll be on the screen. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. We're going to skip some of the story. They're out fishing. Jesus did some of the same things he had done before, telling them how to catch fish. But anyway, he says to them, hey, come and have breakfast from the shore. They figure out what's going on. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus turned to Simon Peter. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He was talking about the other six disciples. Seven of them had gone fishing that day. And there were six others, and Jesus turns to them and says, Simon, Peter, remember he changed his name. Do you love me more than these six? Now this was an incredibly convicting question. Because as as Peter is sitting there looking at those six, he sees one of them is John who wrote this. And that same John who wrote this was the same one who actually stayed at the feet of Jesus to the point that right before Jesus died, he said, Mom, look at your new son. He's going to take care of you. John, look at your new mother. One of the six was the one who was willing to stay. One of the six was one of the one, the one who was given charge to take care of the mother of Jesus. That's a pretty important thing, don't you think? And Jesus looks and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, well, then feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? If you can just imagine the despair in his voice, he responds, Lord, you know everything. So you know that I love you something really important and powerful that happened in that story that unfortunately you and I don't see because we don't speak Greek. And every now and then we need to know something about the language. You'll allow me to share it with you. In the Greek language there are four words for love. They use two different words in their encounter. First word is agape. Maybe you've heard that word. It's considered to be the highest and purest form of love. It's a sacrificial love. Agape would mean that I would lay down my life for you. And so when 
Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? He said, do you agape me? It's a little too soon because that's the kind of love that Peter had promised just before Jesus was killed. I'll lay down my life for you. Peter's response was, Lord, you know that I phileo, a different Greek word for love. It's a brotherly affection. It's where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. I can only imagine as Peter is sitting there and Jesus, who he thinks he's disappointed more than anyone, all because he was afraid of people, is looking at him and saying, do you agape? Do you love me at a level that is sacrificial? I think Peter only just felt disappointment inside. And he probably looks over Jesus' shoulder and he sees John, the one who actually stayed by his side when he didn't. And his response is, yes, Lord, you know that I have affection for you. It's a funny encounter, isn't it? So Jesus asked him a second time. He's given Peter another chance. He should know better by now. The redemptive nature of his God. Peter, do you agape me? And the second time, Peter looks at him and says, Lord, you know, I have phileo for you, a brotherly affection. I love you. And it's interesting that Peter is grieved that Jesus asked a third time because when Jesus asked a third time, he met Peter where he was. And he said, Peter, do you phileo love me? He changed. This is Peter was grieved. Lord, you know all things. So you know I, I don't feel like I can say agape, but you know I, I phileo love you. It's just the best that I've got. I've let you down. I was afraid of you. I, I ran. I hid. I'm not good enough. Jesus would not let Peter stay in a place where his fear kept him away. He came to where he was, running, hiding. He'd gone back to fishing. He didn't even know what was going to become of his life. And Jesus finds him fishing, pulls him to the shore and says, I'm not going to leave you where fear separates you from me. Today, I want you to know, I believe Jesus is having the same kind of moment with you. There's not a person in this room or online that has not let fear keep us from being close to Jesus at some point. Maybe you were afraid of being rejected by people. Maybe you were afraid of the change that Jesus is asking. Maybe it's still a current fear. Maybe you're afraid that you're not good enough because of what you've done. Every single one of us at some point and what I want you to know today is Jesus is not shaking his head. He is coming to you right now and saying, do you love me? Are you ready to confront the fear? Call it out and name it so that you can get closer to Jesus. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you that you have always been the one who came to us and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so right now, God, we, we just confess to you we have been afraid. We probably are still afraid. And we ask you, would you give us courage? Would you give us strength to, to label exactly what we have loved more in this world than you? God, we want to be closer. Jesus, we want to take the step towards you that you have taken towards us. And so today, would you remove whatever fear? Would you give us 
by the power of your spirit inside of us, the strength to say no more. No more will this fear be in the way. Would you give us a Joseph and Nicodemus moment where we say, I was afraid for long enough, but at this moment, at all costs, I'll risk everything. I will be closer to you, Jesus. God, we thank you that you are one who loves and redeems. If you just stand in a place of prayer, I'd like to speak to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. Maybe that also was over fear. Maybe you were afraid of what it would mean to be a Christian. Maybe you were afraid you weren't ready to make that commitment. But here's the good news. God loved you so much that when you were separated from him, it's just sin. We've all had a thought and attitude or done something that wasn't perfectly godly. But he loved you too much and so much that he sent his son Jesus to die in your place. As he died on the cross, his blood was shed, his body was broken. It would pay the penalty for sins. But since he had none of his own, it paid for our sins and we can be forgiven. And just as he was raised from the dead, you and I can also have the promise of eternal life. We call it the free gift of salvation, but every one of us at some point, we have to receive that gift. And if you've never done that, I wanna help you do that right now, wherever you are. Simply pray and say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And so now, I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. In my prayer here today, would you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Would you all help me celebrate that?